morning, church, and happy Easter. Good good to see you all. Um, I would like to uh, read the story of the resurrection from John's gospel this morning, chapter 20, specifically verses 1 through 18, and specifically focusing on Mary Magdalene. And I'd like to reflect on a few things with you this morning. So verse, uh, there's Bibles in the back, but it's also on the screen right here. Verse 1, John 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first, which is so weird to put in a resurrection story. (laughs) Make sure you get that in there. Make sure that you get that in there. (laughs) He bent over and looked in the, uh, bent over and looked uh, in the tomb and uh, looked in at strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. And then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb And he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. And the cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also... (laughs) Make sure you get that in there again, twice. Also went inside. He saw and believed. And they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, please tell me where you've put him and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Arabic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, um, we thank you for the beauty of this morning. I specifically thank you that uh, the sun is out in San Francisco this winter. And so we say, all good things are from you. Thank you, God. This morning, I pray that we would encounter the risen Christ and that you would in the way that you know how to do God each of us individually personally um, reintroduce yourself to us like you did to the first disciples here and we pray all this in the name of Jesus amen the modern philosopher Alain de Bouton has this really wonderful book on art called art as therapy And if you get it, I recommend the hardcover. It's really, really beautiful. And in it, he has this chapter on hope where he talks about how in the art world, typically pretty art or cheery art 
is looked down upon by people with taste and intelligence. The belief goes that it's the people without much of an education in art that tend to think that art should be about pretty things, like this Monet called uh, Water Lily Pond, or this painting by Angelica Kaufman called uh, The Artist in the Character of Design Listening to the Inspiration of Poetry, which is a great title for <laughs> this painting. Now, these paintings are beautiful, though they are often deemed as low art, even bad art, and deeply troubling by the intelligentsia and the avant-garde. Bhutan says that the worries are, with this kind of art, pretty pictures like these, a picture X, water, gardens, and flowers, and landscapes, and beautiful people, he says the worries are that these pictures feed sentimentality. And what is sentimentality? Sentimentality is a symptom of insufficient engagement with the complexity of life, meaning it doesn't deal with the real problems of life. Pretty pictures don't actually improve life as a whole, they say. It just tries to make it better with flowers. Like if you really, really, really messed up with a loved one and you just showed up with flowers thinking that was gonna make everything better. It's like, life is horrible, so just hang a Monet in your house and all will be better. The argument says it doesn't fix anything, it's just sentimental. But the other worry about pretty art, he writes, is this fear that the prettiness of art will numb us and leave us insufficiently serious and alert to the injustices surrounding us. In other words, it makes us unjustifiably hopeful. In some ways, Easter can be seen like this. It can feel like this. Maybe you feel like this this morning. Esau McCauley, the author of Reading While Black, wrote an essay for the New York Times yesterday where he described, or he opened the essay by saying this. He said, quote, Easter has never been my favorite church service. Shouting, Alleluia, Christ is risen, requires an emotional crescendo my melancholy temperament can't easily manage. Now, I've heard this from the past from people before, actually a lot of people, how some people don't even want to come to church on Easter because they are not in the mood to be happy clappy. They feel that church on Easter is too sentimentalized, too cheery, too pretty. People dressed up, flowers everywhere, everyone's supposed to be smiling and celebratory. In other words unjustifiably hopeful. Now, Lane de Bhutan argues that these worries about attractive and pretty art being unjustifiably hopeful are usually misplaced. Because, he says, our problem is not that we live our lives with too rosy a view of everything. That's not the problem. In actuality, in reality, most of the time, we suffer from excessive gloom, he says. We are all too aware of the problems and the injustice of this world. Most of us, with the news on and our social media feeds filled with the latest tragedy, feel exhaustingly small and weak in the face of all the world's problems, let alone our own personal problems. Most of us don't have this world is too pretty for me problem. Our problem, especially in the last several years, is more akin to excessive gloom. Actually, come to think of it, excessive gloom would be a very good description of our world today. I mean, apart from what you may personally be going through right now, there are wars, there are, there's inflation, spy balloons, UFOs in the news, in the news, actual news, <laughs> nightly news, or we're supposed to call them UAPs now, but whatever, mass shootings, deadly fungus, and not, I'm not talking about the last of us, I'm talking about <laughs> like the actual news talks about deadly fungus, 
And of course, banks collapsing. Ashley, my wife, turned to me the other day when the news was on talking about especially deadly fungus and she said with the most serious look on her face, is this the end? Like for real, you're a pastor, you should know this. Is this the end? (laughs) Now, my intention in sharing all of this is not to kill the vibe in here. You're like, we had a good vibe, but we were dancing like not that long ago. (laughs) My intention is not to kill the vibe. It's actually to set up a question. And the question is this, what if Easter and Easter morning has more in common with what we really feel like underneath all of our nice clothes? What if the happy, clappy Easter is only a thing because we have chosen a sentimentality that elects not to deal with the complexities of that first Easter morning? So my invitation to us today is not to do that. Let's not be guilty of that. Today, let's go all the way in. Our text opens with these very pregnant words. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, John, the mystical writer of this gospel, plays with the light and dark polarities all throughout his book. He loves to do this. So dark means, of course, dark, but it also means dark. Excessive gloom, are you with me? It means dark. And the first Easter morning was indeed full of darkness. The followers of Jesus were deeply traumatized by the fact that the one they thought was going to remove them from the tyranny of Rome and usher in a golden age of shalom on earth, well, he was brutally murdered just days before this. And it was as if Jesus just let it happen. That was like probably the most disorienting part of the whole crucifixion scene. He didn't try to stop anyone from punching, accusing, betraying, and nailing him to wood. Even though what they had experienced of Jesus up to this point was that Jesus exercises all sorts of power over like evil forces, dark forces, even powerful forces. And he was able to talk himself out of every single hairy situation. But it was at the cross, it was like Jesus met his match, he gave up, and he dreadfully lost. This darkness that John speaks of on the first Easter morning was a darkness of trauma, of deep emotional pain, of loss, of hopelessness, of terrible vulnerability, and not the good Brene Brown kind of vulnerability, (laughs) like the vulnerability that left the disciples fearing that what happened to Jesus might happen to them. So alone, vulnerable, and bereft, Mary Magdalene, while still in the middle of this very dark situation, went to the tomb of Jesus. And it says when Mary got to the tomb, she saw that the stone, that was the stone in front of the tomb, like blocking the tomb, had been removed or had been rolled away. So she ran to Peter and the other disciples and said, someone took the body of Jesus. The body was stolen and we don't know where they put him. Now here's the thing. When we are traumatized, we experience things in traumatized ways. We have traumatized assumptions about what's happening all around us. When we've been in a traumatized relationship, whenever there's like a new or different relationship, we tend to react in traumatized ways out of old trauma. We do this with our bosses and coworkers, church leaders and churches. Like when something that smells like the same thing is happening, we just, we act in traumatized ways. And we do this with all sorts of things. 
See, Mary assumes, as she's caught up in the pain and the trauma of the moment, that someone stole Jesus's body. And she assumed this just by seeing the stone rolled away. She didn't even go inside. She just saw the stone rolled away and ran, and she assumed that the body was stolen. Now, this assumption will be one she'll be stuck in during almost this entire narrative scene. Now, when she brings the disciples who run to the tomb, they peer into the tomb. They don't see anything but linen and cloth, what Jesus' body would have been wrapped in. And then they head back home to hide. Now, the camera doesn't follow the disciples back home. It stays right on Mary, who is right in front of the tomb, crying. Again, it's like she's stuck here. The narrative reads like she can't move. And at first, she can't bring herself to cross the threshold of Jesus' tomb. She just stands outside of it, crying and weeping. Now, there's a, there is and was a way that ancient civilizations and ancient people groups viewed the world. It's a view that's still very popular today, a view that would actually dominate the collective imagination of all humanity, if it not for the scene before us and its implications, but more on that in a second. The way they viewed the world was that time and events and life inside of those times and events were cyclical. That is, they went around and around and around. Tomorrow will be an endless repeat of today. Things are the way they are, and you are helpless in any big and meaningful way to change it. The Sibyl of Cumae, Sibyls were um, prophets in uh, ancient Greece. The Sibyl of Cumae, the shadowy prophetess in ancient Greece, prophesied doom and death to Greece as the cyclical nature of all reality. The message of, this, of the Sibyl was that though sometimes are better and sometimes are worse, there can be no permanent safety in this world. Peace will be followed by war. Prosperity will be followed by poverty. Happiness by suffering. Life by death. That's just the way things are. Scholar and popular historian Thomas Cahill says that this cyclical nature of reality was indeed the constant message of all ancient literature and its principal insight into human existence. Things just keep going around and around. Tomorrow will be an endless repeat of today. Things are the way they are and you are helpless in any real meaningful way to change it. Now, another word for this, of course, is despair. This feeling of your life choices putting you in a pattern that repeats itself and you can't get out of it. You, are, you just resign yourself to think this is the way life is. Which is strange because this isn't just an ancient view of things. Even though we pride ourselves in being progressive and like in the words of Steven Pinker, thanks to progress, this, this is the best the world has ever been. But I think if you just kind of scratch beneath the surface of that, Underneath all of that, all of that progress stuff that we talk about is this, this same feeling. Last year, I had the chance to go see a movie with a friend, which is kind of rare these days. And I got to go to see this movie at Alamo Draft House, which is really rare these days. And as we were choosing the movie, um, I told my friend Al, who I was going with, that I want to see a movie 
that moved me. I didn't, we could have just went there and ate, ate popcorn and drink Diet Coke and just watch any movie just as long as we're in a theater watching something. That's just fun in itself. But I wanted to see a movie like, oh, let's choose a movie that moves you, that gets you in touch with your humanity. You know how movies can do that where you're just moved and you see things differently? Well, the movie that we saw happened to become the movie of the year. And this movie, I don't know if you've seen this movie. Now, by the way, I do movies. This is rated R, so I don't recommend that you see it. This is a church. <laughs> fine print. Okay, fine print. Read the fine print. But what, when we watch this movie, and what's striking about this movie, by the way, no spoilers, promise. If you're like, I haven't got to it yet. Okay, but no, no spoilers. <laughs> what was striking about this movie to me was how the existential angst at the heart of this movie was despair. If you saw it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The movie revolved around laundry and taxes. You're like, I thought it was about the metaverse. No, laundry and taxes. I just rewatched it for the third time yesterday while I was doing laundry and the movie just hit differently. I came upstairs afterwards with tears in my eyes and told Ash I was downstairs folding laundry and crying. And she's like, one of those Saturdays. So <laughs> now one layer of the movie was how life is monotonous and you don't know how you got to where you are in life. Like, how is this my life? Life keeps going around and around and around, laundry, around and around and around, never ending cycle. But the movie also explores the deeper theme of despair bordering on nihilism. Actually, not bordering on nihilism, full-on nihilism. Because what's the point of going around and around and around in this cyclical life? Okay, so back to Mary outside of the tomb. For her, this cycle is starting all over again. She thought she had broken free. She thought she lived in a different and new reality. We don't know much about Mary's background, but what we do know is that she was delivered from intense demonic activity in her life with Jesus, or by, in her life by Jesus. She met Jesus, and Jesus changed her life. She met the person who said he was bringing in the good news, that the time had come and the kingdom of God was breaking in, and he was the one that was doing all of that by truth and healing and power. And his message, though it was one of challenge, his words had all the force of invitation behind them, not condemnation. Jesus' words were that of welcome possibility. But all this hope and all this possibility was gone now, it was dead and the cycle repeats. What was it that the Sybil said again? Happiness was to be followed by suffering, life by death. Was she to go back to her old way of life? Like the disciples will see, end up doing, or try to do? Would the demons come back? When finally, when Mary finally brings herself to look inside the tomb, she sees two angels and she doesn't flinch. Like typically when angels show up in the New Testament, they have to say something like, do not be afraid because they're angels and angels freak people out apparently in the New Testament. But they don't have to say any such thing to Mary. She doesn't even seem to be moved by their presence. And then the text says that she turns and she sees Jesus standing there, but she doesn't realize nor recognize it's him. 
But here's, here's what's interesting. Both the angels and Jesus ask her the same question. Why are you crying? This is interesting because they know why she's crying. They know why she's outside of this tomb weeping. But sometimes it's not until someone asks us what we're crying about that we know what to say. Sometimes we need someone to ask the question, why are you crying? This is the therapeutic question. Like, where does it hurt? Or how long has it hurt? Or why are you in despair? Oftentimes we don't know how to formulate an answer until we're asked the question. And once we are, something is unlocked in us or invited to come out. Now Mary answers both the angels and Jesus, of course, but she answers from her trauma, still stuck there. She can't see outside of it. She can't see apart from her trauma. She can't imagine any other explanation of the future or the past. In her mind, there is no other way the storyline goes than the one I have in my head. She doesn't react to the angels. She doesn't recognize Jesus. She's stuck. This is a kind of despair that's born from trauma. The spiritual writer Ronald Roheiser says this about despair. Despair is the death of our sense of surprise. The belief that nothing new can happen to us. We despair at the precise moment when, consciously or unconsciously, we say in resignation, that is the way I am. This is the way things have been, always been for me. And that is the way it will always be. For me, it's too late. Once this has been said, we are in a tomb. Much of us is dead and more of us is still dying. I think this is very relevant for us today, not only because this is literally the plot of the movie of the year, which says something about our cultural malaise, but also because we're back to where we began. See, what you can't cover over or cover up is how deeply painful life can be how the futility of it, the randomness of it, even the pointlessness of it, how it just hits us sometimes. Which is why Easter and the beauty of Easter is essential and indispensable for any real hope in this life. And I say real because you can have like flashes of it. You can have moments where like you can choose to be happy or you can choose to be joyful, but any real and lasting hope is found in the resurrection. Now, what do I mean by that? Now, back to Art and Elaine Debuton. Here's his argument. He actually makes an argument for a pretty and cheerful art as a philosopher. He says this, quote, cheerfulness is an achievement and hope is something to celebrate. If optimism is important, it's because many outcomes are determined by how much of it we're willing to bring to the task. It's an important ingredient of success. This flies in the face of the elite view that talent is the primary requirement of a good life. But in many cases, the difference between success and failure is determined by nothing more than our sense of what is possible. What Elaine Debuton is saying is that cheerful art, pretty art, looked down upon by the avant-garde elite art community is necessary to our humanity because beauty shows us what's possible. If you don't know what's possible, you can't have hope and move out of excessive gloom, the excessive gloom of this world. 
See, why we find Mary stuck outside the tomb weeping, now we, and we do not blame her for this at all. There is no blame. The reason why she's stuck outside of the tomb weeping is that she doesn't know what's possible. She lives in the old order of things where dead things stay dead. She doesn't know that there is a new possible way opening up right before her. And we don't blame her for this because we too get stuck. The trauma of our lives brings upon us all kinds of despair. Despair where we feel like we're stuck in relationships or stuck in cycles at at our work or where we move. We don't think life can happen in our marriage like it's far too gone for that. We don't think our loved ones can get sober and clean because they have been functionally dysfunctional for way too long. We don't think the surprise of something new can possibly break into our lives. We get there too. But I, I want you to hear me. Please hear me when I say this. I'm not talking about Easter Sunday as, as being a metaphor for new things coming into your life. Or the resurrection of Jesus being an allegory of how we can be surprised in a joy and beauty if we just open our eyes. I'm not, I'm not here for that message. Though that message is very inspiring, I wouldn't spend my Easter or your Easter on a message like that. What I'm trying to say is that what's possible is not just flowers and lily ponds. What's possible is this whole other world of new creation that is breaking into this world. So now anything is possible with God, like anything is possible with God. God's world of renewal and redemption is here because Jesus rose from the dead. And I'm not just talking figuratively, but physically, actually rose from the dead. See, these stories that we keep telling through books and movies about the new possibilities and hope coming from another world or some multiverse. This is kind of literally what happened. This other world broke into this one through Jesus' life, death, and most importantly, his resurrection and brought with Jesus' raised body new creation. Now, you're probably thinking, well, those are movies and stories, and I have no problem with an Easter sermon as long as you keep this in the realm of a story. Because we all know that dead people don't come back to life. Like, dead people don't come back to life. I know that. I know you know that. And I want you to know they knew that too. We can't be guilty of what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. We're like, oh my, we know so much more than they thought dead people came back. No, they didn't. They didn't think dead people came back to life then. Which is why she's like, someone stole the body. There's, There's no explanation for this. They didn't see this coming at all. What's happening here is new is breaking into old. The old is represented by death of the beautiful Jesus by this harsh and cruel world. The old is represented by the trauma and despair of Mary weeping outside the tomb, stuck and paralyzed. But the new is right here, right next to her. But she turns to him and remember, she thinks he's the gardener. Why does she think he's the gardener? because they're in a garden. They're in a garden. Jesus' tomb was in a garden. Now, if you're new to the Bible, humanity started in a garden and then spiraled out of control. The cycle started. Life moves to death, copy, paste, repeat. But now in this garden, a new and possible way is opened up. 
The scholar Richard Bauckham puts it rather well when he says this about the resurrection. Jesus's resurrection is therefore God's promise of new creation for the whole of the God-forsaken reality which the crucified Jesus represents. It is therefore an event of dialectical promise. It opens up a qualitatively new future which negates all the negatives of present experience. It opens up a future which is not simply drawn out of the eminent possibilities of present reality, but radically contradicts present reality. If you're like, well, how in the world do dead people come back to life? That's the point. There is no sort of like measurement that science could do to measure this because it's new reality from a different world breaking into this world. That's what's happening. And he goes on and he says, it promises life for the dead, righteous for the unrighteous, freedom for those in bondage. What's happening here is new life. A new kingdom is breaking into this world through Jesus' resurrection. And the new is there. But not only is this true, but it can't just live in the, like, the realm of like ideas. I think it has to become personal, which is why we, all the resurrection stories are personal stories. Let's end back in the garden with Mary standing next to Jesus thinking he's the gardener. Mary can't see Jesus. She can't see the new and possible way opened up before her. What will wake her up? And the answer is her name. Jesus says, Mary. He calls her by name and she comes alive. She sees him for the first time and she, I think she hears her name for the first time. Like she knows who she is. See, Easter is not about encountering an idea or a story or even a set of truths necessarily. For it to mean something to us, it has to be personal. It's like the difference between a menu and a meal. It's quite possible to get excited about a menu, to have our mouth water, to read the menu and see new and amazing possibilities for food combinations. And then there's tasting it. Quite a different experience. See, what I've been talking about this morning might set the table and put before you a menu you hadn't considered before, or maybe you've considered it, but it hasn't changed your life yet. The point of a menu is that you would experience the meal. And when you do, having gone through all the excessive gloom and darkness that this life brings, all of us, then maybe the beauty, the flowers, the clapping, all of that is justified on Easter morning because we know what's really possible. New life is here and with new life, all sorts of new possibilities. Would you stand with me as we pray?